0: Welcome to episode 2 of Beyond Statistics the Unknown. In last week's episode, we explored the unknown world of crime, from unidentified criminals to unreported crimes and unknown victims. In today's episode, I will be exploring how criminals manage to remain unknown and uncaught in the first place. The podcast episode will explore the lengths that undetected criminals will go to in order to never get caught and in many cases to never be identified. To reiterate the statistic that I shared in episode one, an average of 40% of homicides go unsolved, according to the FBI Uniform Crime Report as of 2019. There are also trafficking cases and abductions that are to be taken into consideration. No body does not mean no crime. Essentially, despite countless advancements within the forensic science field, an alarming number of criminals continue to remain unknown by one, targeting those with substandard lifestyles, two, taking forensic countermeasures, and three, by altering their identity and moving locations post-offence. Let's begin by discussing particular targets of crime. It is public knowledge that not everyone lives a life of equal opportunity or standard. And it is those who are already less fortunate that often end up as victims of crimes such as human trafficking, murder, and abduction. Let us start by defining the term human trafficking. Essentially, it is the exploitation of a person's labor through force, fraud, or coercion. As stated, trafficking victims tend to be society's most vulnerable. In short, human trafficking is the unlawful act of forcing individuals to act against their will, oftentimes while under the influence of manipulation. It is estimated that on an international scale, there are between 20 million and 40 million individuals in modern slavery. The United Nations refers to the number surrounding human trafficking as the hidden figure of crime due to how the majority of trafficking cases remain undetected. Estimates suggest that internationally, only about 0.04% of human trafficking case survivors are identified. This statistic goes to show just how the vast majority of trafficking victims are unknown. Estimates suggest that an alarming 50,000 people are trafficked into the U.S. each year, most often from Mexico and the Philippines. This is according to DoSomething.org. Those living substandard lifestyles, who are oftentimes the victims of human trafficking and other crimes, include but are not limited to sex workers, illegal immigrants, and homeless youth. It is also important to understand the meaning of the term homeless, which can apply to various situations. Homelessness is defined by the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness as an individual or family without stable, permanent, appropriate housing, or the immediate prospect, means, and ability of acquiring it. This can apply to youth in the foster care system, youth on the street, and even sex workers. These profiles are statistically most vulnerable to human trafficking in particular. Prostitutes, for instance, operate under the coercion and manipulation of traffickers. And a study in Chicago found that 56% of prostituted women were initially runaway youth and similar numbers have been identified for male populations, according to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Likewise, reports indicate that a large number of child sex trafficking survivors in the U.S. were at one time in the foster care system. These statistics show an apparent and strong connection between homeless youth and trafficking. A statistic which is significant to why so many traffickers get away with trafficking is as follows. In 2018, over half, 51.6% of the criminal human trafficking cases active in the U.S. were sex trafficking cases involving only children. Essentially, children are the primary target of trafficking, but they are also the least likely to admit that they were trafficked. And it is for this very reason that many traffickers are never caught. For the sake of providing insight into the unknown world that is human trafficking, in the rare case where a trafficker is identified, it is documented that the vast majority of victims at 92% knew the perpetrator who was responsible. In respect to 31% of reported trafficking cases, the victim and the accused had a relationship as either a friend or an acquaintance, and the most common relationship between those who were trafficked and the traffickers. Furthermore, close to another third, at 29%, of victims were trafficked by a current or former intimate partner. More specifically, 1 in 4, at 24%, victims of human trafficking were trafficked by a current or former boyfriend, girlfriend, or other intimate partner. While for 5% of the victims, the accused person was a current or former spouse or common-law partner. This concept is another reason as to why traffickers are not always reported. Because despite circumstances, there is still a bond between the victim and the perpetrator in many cases. Now think back to an example in your life. Has there ever been a time that someone betrayed you and hurt you so bad, yet you still have a relationship with them? Because you still care about them despite what they have done? This this same concept applies to human trafficking. As explained in a study by Loyola University New Orleans, trauma bonding makes youth feel dependent on their traffickers and as if leaving them will actually create more harm than good. So as a result, young people struggle psychologically to find the strength to escape. Youth express conflicted feelings about their traffickers. To provide perspective on the number of traffickers that remain Unidentified, Statistics Canada reported that of the 1,708 incidents of police reported human trafficking since that of 2009, nearly half, at 47%, have not been cleared. This means that an accused person has not been identified by police in connection to the incident. It is scary to think that there are hundreds of unknown traffickers possibly walking among us. As demonstrated, there are several explanations as to how human traffickers remain at large but the main way in which it is possible is due to the degree by which human trafficking is often hidden. This is often made possible since many cases of trafficking are potentially transnational and involves victims who may be unaware that they are being trafficked, in precarious or vulnerable situations, fearful, fearful or distrustful of authorities, fearful of deportation or loss of employment, or who may be facing threats from the traffickers. In extreme cases, human trafficking can even extend to abduction and homicide dependent on varying circumstances. For instance, youth reported a wide range of harms inflicted on them while engaging in the sex trade from sexually transmitted diseases to physical and sexual assault to kidnapping. Essentially, in regards to homicides or abduction cases, crimes may also go unnoticed or unreported when homeless youth or sex workers are the target. This is due to how they have no one to report them. A child in the foster care system, for instance, who is living on the streets may not have anyone looking after them, hence not being reported after going missing. Sometimes victims also remain a Jane or John Doe as a result of no one ever identifying them, likely for the same reasons. These circumstances make it ever so difficult to connect a perpetrator to a crime. A perfect example of a case involving youth victims who were also identified as John Doe's is a double homicide that targeted two black males in Dorchester, Massachusetts. According to the FBI, both bodies were found in 1988, covered in tarp. It was assumed that the two teenagers were of Jamaican descent and possibly from the Bronx, New York. Both teenagers to this day remain at John Doe. And considering their age and the fact that no one, after all this time, has reported or claimed their identities, it is feasible that they are homeless youth since they do fit that profile. In rare cases, if no one comes forth to claim a person's identity or to report someone missing, it could lead authorities to suspect that a family member is responsible. When considering sex workers who oftentimes work under false identities, it is feasible that those cases would further complicate an investigation or would simply be the reason as to why a victim is not identified or ever reported to begin with. It is evident that despite the increased awareness surrounding the underground crime world, traffickers as well as other criminals still manage to remain undetected all by targeting those who already live lives below the usual standards. Another method that criminals use to get away with crimes such as trafficking, murder and abduction is by taking forensic countermeasures at the time of the crime. As I explained in episode 1 of this podcast series, crimes portrayed in TV shows always seem to get solved 99.9% of the time. Investigators always manage to track down every possible lead. In real life, however, investigations do not play out in such a manner. Fibers are not always left behind at the crime scene, criminals rarely leave behind fingerprints, and there is not always surveillance footage. In the real-life crime world, criminals often take countless forensic countermeasures to remain unidentified. They take advantage of weather conditions, tamper with potential digital evidence, avoid being connected to ballistics, wear gloves to avoid leaving fingerprints, or even remove their fingerprints entirely by burning them off or even surgically altering them. Assumably, these countermeasures all make it that much more difficult for investigators to identify them or even find an initial lead. Let's first consider digital footage and subsequent evidence. If a criminal wants to remain unidentified, they could essentially deactivate sources of surveillance prior to committing their crime. Or if they have hacking skills, they can tamper with digital evidence post-offense. Another way that a perpetrator could eliminate any digital evidence that could connect them to a crime is if they are a member of law enforcement. Today, there are many mixed feelings surrounding law enforcement, and there is a reason for it. According to a study which I came across, statistics show that in the USA, between 2005 and 2011, 125 members of law enforcement were arrested for murder and non-negligent manslaughter, 37 for kidnapping, and 62 for unintentional manslaughter. Therefore, it is not unheard of for law enforcement members to act unlawfully. With this being said, I'm going to readdress the possibility of law enforcement tampering with digital evidence post defense Members of the law have access to this evidence and can eliminate the same evidence without appearing unusually suspicious. Essentially, when it comes to taking digital forensic countermeasures, this method of remaining undetected is most feasible for hackers and law enforcement. With respect to fingerprints and the investigation process, this form of identity can only help with the forensic process to an extent. If you have watched crime shows, you have probably seen your favorite TV detectives upload a fingerprint found at a crime scene into a computer database. If you have seen this, you probably already know that fingerprints only sometimes come back as a match to one already found in a federal database. Fingerprints can only be matched to a perpetrator if that individual is already in the system's databases. If not, investigators have nothing to compare it to, and the fingerprint cannot serve as an identification tool. Oftentimes, however, criminals avoid leaving fingerprints altogether. This is possible by simply wearing gloves or by literally erasing their fingerprints. This is possible by burning their fingerprints with the use of heat or acid, or surgically modifying or removing their prints by cutting and restitching the skin, either by a method of self mutilation or with the help of a doctor operating illegally and often for high profit. By doing so, criminals can avoid having their fingerprints matched to those in a database from previous arrests, or simply avoid leaving fingerprints at a crime scene to begin with. Evidently, taking forensic countermeasures can help criminals commit a crime without leaving a trace and, therefore, being able to remain undetected. In some criminal cases, in addition to or rather than taking forensic countermeasures, perpetrators may make a change in their identity or location post-offense. If you are a fellow Jane the Virgin fan, then you are familiar with the concept of a criminal getting plastic surgery to conceal their true identity post-offense. Not only did the notorious Sin Rostro in Jane the Virgin alter her own identity, she also performed illegal plastic surgeries on fellow criminals. Yes, this is TV, and no, it's not quite based off of a true story. However, there are real cases of real criminals altering their identity with plastic surgery. This also usually involves plastic surgeons operating illegally. A world-famous case where a criminal altered his identity with surgery and fled their country is Camorra Mob Boss Pasquale Scotti. Scotti was among the most wanted mobsters in Italy before finally being caught in 2015 after 30 years on the run. Officials report that he had begun a completely new life with a new family in Brazil, which was where he was arrested after changing his name and appearance.
1: Italian mafia boss and former leader of the Camoro syndicate, who was wanted for over two dozen murders, has been captured by police in Brazil after 31 years on the run. Pasquale Scotti is one of Italy's most feared mafia bosses, but was captured taking his children to school in northeast Brazil. And wait for it, police believe that his Brazilian family were totally unaware of his background and identity, as he'd been living under a false name, reinventing himself as a nightclub owner and an importer. Of food, wow. you know, this man has been somewhat of a myth for years. He left Italy in the 80s. In around 1995, he married a Brazilian woman, had two children with her. Renato Natale, who is the anti-mafia mayor of one of the Camorra areas, which was the Camorra was the organization mm-hmm. that had so much of this mafia involvement in Italy, he said this. Here's a quote. He said, "I thought he had completely disappeared from circulation. So this news." Surprised me pleasantly. Justice runs its course, and in the end, they catch you. Now, he was in his 20s when he committed these crimes, and it was actually Interpol that found this 56 year old man by the examination of his fingerprints that looked nothing like the pictures they originally had of him when he committed over 26 murders. Family knew nothing about it. Sounds like a bit of a movie to me in the making.
0: Living Scotty fled Italy and underwent several plastic surgery procedures as officially reported by police to remain undetected for decades. This makes you think, how many other fugitives are out there still managing to remain uncaught thanks to plastic surgery? Aside from the many Italian gang members who are notorious for fleeing the authorities and remaining undetected, there are also instances of Canadian criminals who have fled from the authorities or changed their identities, who to this day remain undetected. The first instance is the case surrounding Toronto woman Rosaline Mary Wallace. Wallace is one of the most wanted people in the Greater Toronto Area and is wanted for manslaughter of her five-year-old child, which transpired in 1987. For over 30 years, Rosaline Mary Wallace has has been in hiding from the authorities and to this day is doing so successfully. Wallace is actually believed by officials to still be living in the Greater Toronto Area under one of her nine aliases, which include Rosemary Fader and Joanne Dimitro. Over 30 years following the incident, Wallace manages to remain undetected all while living in the same city where it all started. It's crazy how someone manages to do that. She too may very well be walking among us. Another example of an uncaught Canadian criminal is Pierre Brian Granado, According to the Bolo program, Kier is wanted for first-degree murder after shooting a man in Calgary, Alberta on December 3rd of 2015. In 2019, a Joseph Trio was charged with one account of accessory after the fact. However, it is Granado whose whereabouts are unknown. Sunday, December 13, 2015, was another quiet day in Monterey Park, a peaceful neighborhood of Calgary. Shortly after 2.30 p.m., the police received several calls reporting gunshots on the 100 block of Delray Road. The victim, Yusing Miri, was pronounced dead at the scene. Kier Brian Granado is wanted by the Calgary Police Service on a Canada-wide warrant for first-degree murder. He is five foot or 154 centimeters tall and has a full-sleeve tattoo on his left arm. Granado is the subject of an Interpol Red Notice. Granato has strong ties to Calgary, but investigators believe he may be living in Edmonton or may have fled to Southeast Asia. Anyone with information on the whereabouts of Granado should contact Crime Stoppers immediately. Granado has also been identified to be working with and associated to the Fresh Off the Boat Killers Gang. Members of the FK gang are known to be involved in organized crime activities and have been responsible for reported homicides in the past. Where is CARE? Could he still be living in his hometown, just barely managing to stay under the radar of law enforcement? As of 2021, these perpetrators, along with many others, continue to live undetected. Whether it was by changing their appearance, changing their location, or engaging in both, they have managed to outsmart the law. Their stories truly do make for the perfect movie plot. Do you think you have the skills that it takes to get away with murder? In this episode, in this episode, I explored how criminals managed to remain unknown or simply uncaught in the first place. From targeting those who already live vulnerable lives, to never leaving behind a trace of their presence at a crime scene, to beginning a new life, these perpetrators are living right under our noses. Are you feeling a little unsettled? If you are enjoying this crime podcast, don't miss next week's episode. I will be taking you into the secret world that is cybercrime. Who is the face behind the screen? You should, dovresti. He/she, dovrebbe. We, dovremmo, You all, dovrebbe. They, dovrebbero. I could, potrei. You potresti. he She/he potrebbe. We potremmo, You all potrebbe. They could potrebbero. Would, I would, vorrei. You would vorresti. She/he vorrebbe. We would vorremmo. You all, be. they would, dovrebbero. I must, devo, devi, deve, dobbiamo, dovete, devono. I should be, dovrei essere, I should have been, sarei dovuto essere, I should have had, avrei dovuto avere, I could have to, podassi che devo, I could have had, avrei potuto avere, I could be able to put in a facella. I would like prace be vorrei. I would have wanted avrei voluto. I would have to do I would have had avrei re Avuto. I would have been serestato. 22 women, Paris baby, go strip tits in my face. Oh my god. Hello, damn. I want Christian. I want Freddy. I want Friday. journalist melissa d'alessandro and today i will be interviewing the subject of my oh shoot this is photojournalist melissa d'alessandro and today i will be interviewing the subject of my photojournalism assignment norman do you want to introduce yourself
2: i was good shit
0: <laughs> oh well, that went well
2: <laughs> shit was good with it <laughs> hey name's travis <laughs> name's jerome shit
0: <laughs> Um, question for you. Are you black or are you white?
2: Shit, sure, nigga. Sure.
0: I guess I got my response. <laughs> this is photojournalist Melissa D'Alessandro, and today I will be interviewing the subject of my photojournalism assignment, Norman. Would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, my name is Norman Matta.
0: So for the assignment, I photographed you and your dog Chimas walking to the park in your local neighborhood. Now, was this your first experience being photographed by a photojournalist?
2: Yes, it was.
0: And how was? How, and how did you like being in front of the camera?
2: Oh, I loved it. You know, I'm I'm very, I'm very uh. Photo capable? What does that mean was the word F- photosynthesis? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Photogenic?
0: laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, how did you like being in front of the camera?
2: Oh, I loved it. Uh, you know, it was uh, a very pleasant experience.
0: And how was the experience different from simply being the subject of a casual photo or a video?
2: A lot more pictures.
0: That is true. <laughs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel that there was pressure to act differently or to stray from your usual dog walking routine?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. As uh the photojournalist here had to take multiple pictures, you know. So I, I guess it's straight away from the usual dog walking routine.
0: In what way did that routine change?
2: In a way that, uh, I couldn't really hit my dog as much. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Shut up!
2: You know, as a wanted man, uh... (laughs) You know, I hate the niggers.
0: You forgot the question, didn't you? I did. Would you say that your dog, Chimas, acted any differently during the walk since I was there, someone new?
2: Yes, she definitely acted more hyper.
0: Do you believe that your neighborhood is a good setting for a photojournalism assignment?
2: Yeah.
0: Can you elaborate? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Do you believe that you would have had a more enjoyable experience being the subject of a photojournalism assignment had the setting been different?
2: Yeah, definitely. I feel like it would have been more interesting for me as that's the usual routine I walk every day. So, it was more so very uh, bland and just normal for me.
0: Now, um... Obviously for photojournalism, you want to stay true to your subject's routine and you want all photos to be candid, essentially, as to not alter the experience. So do you believe on that note that it is truly possible to be authentic and maintain genuine routine and character when being the subject of photography? Or is there a subconscious instinct to act?
2: Mm, I would more so say it's conscious. Uh, I feel like no one acts really... Their actual self in front of a camera. So when a camera is added to a setting, I feel like everyone wants to look their best, you know, perform the, the best of their abilities, quote unquote. But um, so I do, I don't think that it is subconscious. I'd say it's more so just consciousness. I feel like everyone wants to be the best when they're in front of a camera or like wants to be at their best, at least.
0: This is photojournalist Melissa D'Alessandro, and today I am here with the subject of my photojournalism assignment, who I am going to interview regarding his experience being in front of a camera for photojournalism purposes. So, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, my name is Norman Mada.
0: So, for the assignment, I essentially photographed him walking his dog Chimas in their local neighborhood to a local park. So, was this your first experience being photographed by a photojournalist? Yes, it was. And how do you like being in front of a camera?
2: I enjoyed it. I tried to act as candid as possible, but being in front of a camera it's hard.
0: So this sort of ties into my next question. How was the experience different from simply being the subject of a casual photo or video?
2: Um it was definitely different in a sense that um this needed to be more candid and uh it was just, you know, going going about my routine. But when someone tries to photograph you, like, let's say, like, in a different setting, you want to look your best and that's definitely not candid. So I guess by that sense, it was pretty different.
0: And so do you feel that there was pressure to act differently or to stray from your usual dog walking routine then on that note?
2: Uh, yes, there was, but I feel like it was more so subconsciously because I know that, you know, that this assignment had to be candid and I just have to act regularly. But when you're in front of a camera, I feel like it's you know, very difficult to do that.
0: And would you say that your dog, Chimas, acted any differently during the walk since I, someone new, was there?
2: Yeah, definitely. She, she acts very hyper around people. So, you know, be it anyone, she, she'll act differently.
0: And do you feel that your personal experience during this, um, during this, uh, oh, and would you say that you would have found the experience more enjoyable if, say, I had photographed you in a different setting?
2: Definitely, as, um, this kind of just felt bland and normal for me, so it wasn't really, like, you know, anything special. If it was in a different setting, I feel like uh, I would have enjoyed it more, too, because of it would have strayed from my normal routine.
0: And do you believe that it is truly possible to be authentic and maintain genuine routine and character when being the subject of photography? Or, like you mentioned before, is there a subconscious instinct to quote-unquote act?
2: Um, I suppose there is, but there's also a conscious effort to try to, like, look your best or to act in a certain way, um... It is quite hard to remain in routine and just to remain natural when you're in front of a camera. I feel like I feel like it's just human instinct to try to behave like the best way you can and to act normally, you know. So trying to make it candid is quite difficult, but, you know, I tried my best.
0: And are there any changes that I could have made to better your experience of being the subject of photojournalism?
2: Mm, No, I don't think so. It was a it was just a normal experience. It didn't feel like you were intruding on my space or um, it it didn't really I tried to block out the fact that you were there so that I can make it candid. So I mean, yeah, no, I don't think so.
0: Okay, so those are all the questions that I had to ask you. So thank you for doing the time. so those are all the questions that I had to ask you. So thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me. And um, if you would like to just say bye to the audience for me. <laughs> <laughs> and on a final note, do you have any advice to give to somebody else who is also the subject of a photojournalism assignment?
2: Yeah, I mean, just act as, uh, act as candid as possible and try to remain natural. Um, do your best.
0: So, Norman, I would just like to thank you for your time and coming in to do this interview with me. And that is it for today.
2: Peace. Yeah, no problem. Have a nice day. Mm. (laughs) Mm.
0: I would just like to say thank you, Norman, for coming in today and taking the time to do this interview with me.
2: Yeah, no problem.
0: Okay, and that's it for today.